Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 308, Channing's Unitarian Christianity, Part 1. William Ellery Channing was born in 1780 in Newport, Rhode Island. He died in 1842 in Bennington, Vermont. In his day, some called him the Apostle of Unitarianism. From 1803 until his death, he was minister of the Federal Street Church in Boston. And what you're going to hear in this and the following episode is his most famous work and the most famous American Unitarian sermon. It was delivered in 1819 at a service for the ordination of another Unitarian minister. And it's a kind of manifesto for American Unitarian Christianity, more specifically, New England Unitarian Congregationalism. If you're a Unitarian Christian, you'll probably hear a lot of things that you agree with, and maybe a few that you disagree with. If you're a Trinitarian, this eloquent presentation will help you to understand where a lot of Unitarian Christians are coming from. In this first part, he gives a succinct and careful summary of what Unitarian Christians understand to be scriptural teaching about the one God and his son Jesus. He also explains how Unitarians interpret Scripture, defends them against the charge that they rely too much on human reason, and lodges some interesting objections of his own to traditional Trinitarian speculations. When I first started preparation for this episode, I thought, well, this will be easy. I've read this sermon more than once, and to me, it's easy reading. But as I worked on the preparation, I realized that American English has changed quite a lot since 1819, and so I found that I had to replace about every 50th word with another word that you would actually understand. Here, then, is my slightly modernized version of William Ellery Channing's famous sermon entitled Unitarian Christianity. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. The unusual circumstances of this occasion not only justify but seem to demand a departure from the course generally followed by preachers at the introduction of a brother into the sacred office. It is usual to speak of the nature, design, duties, and advantages of the Christian ministry. And on these topics, I should now be happy to insist, did I not remember that a minister is to be given this day to a congregation whose different theological views have drawn upon them much remark and, may I not add, much criticism. Many good minds, many sincere Christians, I am aware, are apprehensive that the solemnities of this day are to give a degree of influence to principles which they deem false and injurious. The fears and anxieties of such people I respect, and, believing that they are grounded in part on mistake, I have thought it my duty to lay before you, as clearly as I can, some of the distinguishing views of that class of Christians in our country who are known to sympathize with this congregation. I must ask your patience, for such a subject is not to be quickly explained. 
I must also ask you to remember that it is impossible to show in a single discourse our views on every doctrine of revelation, much less the differences of opinion which are known to exist among ourselves. I shall confine myself to topics on which our views have been misrepresented or which distinguish us most widely from others. May I not hope to be heard with an open heart? God deliver us all from prejudices and unkindness and fill us with the love of truth and virtue. There are two natural divisions under which my thoughts will be arranged. I shall endeavor to make clear, first, the principles which we adopt in interpreting the Scriptures, and secondly, some of the doctrines which the Scriptures, so interpreted, seem to us clearly to express. We regard the Scriptures as the records of God's successive revelations to the human race, and particularly of the last and most perfect revelation of His will by Jesus Christ. Whatever doctrines deem to us to be clearly taught in the Scriptures, we receive without reserve or exception. We do not, however, attach equal importance to all the books in this collection. Our religion, we believe, lies chiefly in the New Testament. The dispensation of Moses, compared with that of Jesus, we consider as adapted to the childhood of the human race, a preparation for a nobler system, and chiefly useful now as serving to confirm and illustrate the Christian scriptures. Jesus Christ is the only master of Christians, and whatever he taught, either during his personal ministry or by his inspired apostles, we regard as of divine authority and profess to make the rule of our lives. This authority which we give to the scriptures is a reason, we think, for studying them with special care and for inquiring anxiously into the principles of interpretation by which their true meaning may be ascertained. The principles adopted by the class of Christians in whose name I speak need to be explained because they are often misunderstood. We are particularly accused of making an unwarrantable use of reason in the interpretation of Scripture. We are said to exalt reason above revelation, to prefer our own wisdom to God's. Loose and undefined charges of this kind are circulated so freely that we think it due to ourselves and to the cause of truth to express our views in some detail. Our leading principle in interpreting Scripture is this, that the Bible is a book written for human beings in the language of human beings, and that its meaning is to be sought in the same manner as that of other books. We believe that God, when He speaks to the human race, conforms, if we may so say, to the established rules of speaking and writing. How else would the scriptures help us more than if communicated in an unknown language? Now, all books and all conversation require in the reader or hearer the constant exercise of reason. In other words, their true meaning is only to be obtained by continual comparison and inference. Human language, you well know, admits various interpretations, and every word and every sentence must be modified and explained according to the subject which is discussed, according to the purposes, feelings, circumstances, and principles of the writer, and according to the expressive powers and idioms of the language which he uses. These are acknowledged principles in the interpretation of human writings, And a man whose words we should explain without reference to these principles would rightly accuse us of a criminal unfairness 
and an intention of obscuring or distorting his meaning. Were the Bible written in a language and style of its own, did it consist of words which can have only one meaning and of sentences wholly detached from each other, there would be no place for the principles now laid down. We could not reason about it as about other writings. But such a book would be of little worth, and perhaps of all books the scriptures correspond least to this description. The word of God bears the stamp of the same hand which we see in his works. It has infinite connections and dependences. Every proposition is linked with others, and is to be compared with others, that its full and precise meaning may be understood. Nothing stands alone. The New Testament is built on the Old. The Christian dispensation is a continuation of the Jewish, the completion of a vast scheme of divine providence, requiring the reader to take a wide-angle view. Still more, The Bible addresses topics on which we receive information from other sources besides the Bible. Such subjects as the nature, passions, relations, and duties of human beings. And it expects us to restrain and modify its language by the known truths which observation and experience give us on these topics. We profess not to know a book which demands a more frequent exercise of reason than the Bible. In addition to the remarks now made on its infinite connections, we may observe that its style nowhere has the precision of science or the accuracy of definition. Its language is singularly glowing, bold, and figurative, demanding more frequent departures from the literal meaning than that of our own age and country, and consequently demanding more continual exercise of judgment. We find, too, that the different portions of this book, instead of being confined to general truths, refer perpetually to the times when they were written, to states of society, to modes of thinking, to controversies in the church, to feelings and customs which have passed away, and without the knowledge of which we are constantly in danger of extending to all times and places what was of temporary and local application. We find, too, that some of these books are strongly marked by the talents and character of their respective writers, that the Holy Spirit did not so guide the apostles as to suspend the distinctive features of their minds, and that a knowledge of their feelings and of the influences under which they were placed is one of the preparations for understanding their writings. With these views of the Bible, we feel it our indispensable duty to exercise our reason upon it continually, to compare, to infer, to look beyond the letter to the Spirit, to seek in the nature of the subject and the aim of the writer his true meaning, and in general, to make use of what is known for explaining what is difficult and for uncovering new truths. Need I give specific examples to prove that the Scriptures demand the exercise of reason? Take, for example, the style in which they generally speak of God, and observe how habitually they apply to Him human passions and organs. Recall the declarations of Christ, that He came not to send peace but a sword, that unless we eat His flesh and drink His blood we have no life in us, that we must hate father and mother and pluck out the right eye, and a vast number of passages equally bold and unlimited. Recall the unqualified manner in which it is said of Christians that they 
possess all things, know all things, and can do all things. Recall the verbal contradiction between Paul and James, and the apparent clashing of some parts of Paul's writings with the general doctrines and aim of Christianity. I might add to this list indefinitely, and who does not see that we must limit all these passages by the known attributes of God, of Jesus Christ, and of human nature, and by the circumstances under which they were written, so as to give the language a quite different meaning from what it would require had it been applied to different beings or used in different connections. Enough has been said to show in what sense we make use of reason in interpreting Scripture. From a variety of possible interpretations, we select that which accords with the nature of the subject and the state of the writer, with the connection of the passage, with the general sense of Scripture, with the known character and will of God, and with the obvious and unacknowledged laws of nature. In other words, we believe that God never contradicts in one part of Scripture what he teaches in another, and never contradicts in Revelation what he teaches in his works and providence. And we therefore distrust every interpretation which, after deliberate attention, seems repugnant to any established truth. We reason about the Bible precisely as civilians do about the constitution under which we live, who, you know, are accustomed to limit one provision of that venerable instrument by others, and to fix the precise meaning of its parts by inquiring into its general spirit, into the intentions of its authors, and into the prevalent feelings, impressions, and circumstances of the time when it was framed. Without these principles of interpretation, we freely acknowledge that we cannot defend the divine authority of the Scriptures. Deny us this latitude, and we must abandon this book to its enemies. We do not announce these principles as original or unique to ourselves. All Christians occasionally adopt them even those who most vehemently denounce them when they happen to menace some favorite article of their creed. All Christians are compelled to use them in their arguments with unbelievers. All theological factions employ them in their warfare with one another. All willingly avail themselves of reason when it can be pressed into the service of their own group, and only complain of it when its weapons wound themselves. None reason more frequently than those from whom we differ. It is astonishing how much they infer from a few slight hints about the fall of our first parents, and how cleverly they extract from detached passages mysterious doctrines about the divine nature. We do not blame them for reasoning so abundantly, but for violating the fundamental rules of reasoning, for sacrificing the plain to the obscure, and the general thrust of Scripture to a scanty number of insulated texts. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Channing pushes back on Christian traditions which continually dump on, quote, human reason.
We object strongly to the contemptuous manner in which human reason is often spoken of by our adversaries, because it leads, we believe, to universal skepticism. If reason be so dreadfully darkened by the fall that its most decisive judgments on religion are unworthy of trust, then Christianity, and even more, what can be known about God apart from revelation, must be abandoned. For the existence and truthfulness of God and the divine origin of Christianity are conclusions of reason and must stand or fall with it. If revelation be at war with this human ability, it subverts itself, for the great question of its truth is left by God to be decided at the bar of reason. It is worthy of remark how similar a reason-hating fanatic is to a skeptic. Both would annihilate our confidence in our mental abilities, and both throw doubt and confusion over truth. We honor revelation too highly to make it the enemy of reason, or to believe that it calls us to renounce our highest powers. We indeed grant that the use of reason in religion is accompanied with danger, but we ask any honest man to look on the history of the church and say whether the renunciation of reason be not still more dangerous. Besides, it is a plain fact that people reason as erroneously on all subjects as on religion. Who does not know the wild and groundless theories which have been framed in physical and political science? But whoever supposed that we must cease to exercise reason on nature and society because we have erred for ages in explaining them? We grant that the passions continually and sometimes fatally disturb our reasoning power and its inquiries into revelation. The ambitious contrive to find doctrines in the Bible which favor their love of dominion. The timid and dejected discover there a gloomy system and the mystical and fanatical a visionary theology. Those devoted to vice can find examples or assertions on which to build the hope of a late repentance or of acceptance on easy terms. The pseudo-sophisticates strain to discover doctrines which have not been befouled by the grubby hands of ordinary people. But the passions do not distract the reason in religious any more than in any other inquiries which excite strong and general interest. And this important human ability is not to be renounced in religion, unless we are prepared to discard it universally. The true inference from the almost endless errors which have darkened theology is not that we are to neglect and disparage our powers, but to exert them more patiently, circumspectly, uprightly. The worst errors, after all, have sprung up in the Roman Catholic Church, which banishes reason and demands from its members implicit faith. The most pernicious doctrines have been the growth of the darkest times, when widespread gullibility encouraged bad men and fanatics to present their dreams and inventions and to stifle the protests of reason by threats of everlasting damnation. Say what we may. God has given us a rational nature, and He will hold us responsible for our use of it. We may let it sleep, but we do so at our peril. Revelation is addressed to us as rational beings. We may wish, in our laziness, that God had given us a complete theological system demanding no labor of comparing, limiting, and inferring, 
but such a system would be at variance with the whole character of our present existence. And it is the part of wisdom to take revelation as it is given to us, and to interpret it by the help of the abilities which it everywhere presupposes, and on which it is founded. To the views now given, an objection is commonly urged from the character of God. We are told that, God being infinitely wiser than humans, things he reveals will surpass human reason. In a revelation from such a teacher, we ought to expect propositions which we cannot reconcile with one another, and which may seem to contradict known truths. And we should not question them or explain them away, but believe and adore them and submit our weak and fleshly reason to the divine word. To this objection, we have two short answers. We say first that it is impossible that a teacher of infinite wisdom should expose those whom he would teach to infinite error. But if once we admit that propositions which in their literal sense appear plainly inconsistent with one another, or with any known truth, are still to be literally understood and received, what possible limit can we set to such belief in contradictions? What protects us from the wildest fanaticism, which can always quote passages that, in their literal and obvious sense, give support to outrageous claims? How can the Protestant escape from transubstantiation, a doctrine most clearly taught us, if the submission of reason now contended for be a duty? How can we even hold fast the truths of Revelation? For if one apparent contradiction may be true, so may another, and the proposition that Christianity is false, although involving inconsistency, may still be a truth. We again answer that, if God be infinitely wise, he cannot play around with the understandings of his creatures. A wise teacher reveals his wisdom in adapting himself to the abilities of his students, not in perplexing them with what is unintelligible not in distressing them with apparent contradictions, not in filling them with a skeptical distrust of their own powers. An infinitely wise teacher who knows the precise extent of our minds and the best method of enlightening them will surpass all other instructors in bringing down truth to our apprehension and in showing its loveliness and harmony. We ought indeed to expect occasional obscurity in such a book as the Bible, which was written for past and future ages, as well as for the present. But God's wisdom is a pledge that whatever is necessary for us, and necessary for salvation, is revealed too plainly to be mistaken, and too consistently to be questioned by a sound and upright mind. It is not the mark of wisdom to use an unintelligible phraseology to communicate what is above our abilities, to confuse and unsettle the intelligent by appearance of contradiction. We honor our heavenly teacher too much to ascribe to him such a revelation. A revelation is a gift of light. It cannot thicken our darkness and multiply our perplexities. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Channing summarizes a Unitarian Christian understanding of biblical teaching on the one God and on his human son.
Having thus stated the principles according to which we interpret scriptures, I now proceed to the second main topic of this discourse, which is to state some of the views which we derive from that sacred book, particularly those which distinguish us from other Christians. In the first place, we believe in the doctrine of God's unity, that is, that there is one God and one only. To this truth we give infinite importance, and we feel ourselves bound to take heed, lest any man rob us of it by vain philosophy. The proposition that there is one God seems to us exceedingly plain. We understand by it that there is one being, one mind, one person, one intelligent agent, and one only to whom underived and infinite perfection and dominion belong. We understand that these words could have conveyed no other meaning to the simple and uncultivated people who were set apart to be the depositories of this great truth, and who were utterly incapable of understanding those hairbreadth distinctions between being and person which the wisdom of later ages has discovered. We find no hint that this language was to be taken in an unusual sense, or that God's unity was a quite different thing from the oneness of other intelligent beings. We object to the doctrine of the Trinity that whilst acknowledging in words, it subverts in effect the unity of God. According to this doctrine, there are three infinite and equal persons possessing supreme divinity called the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of these persons, as described by theologians, has his own particular consciousness, will, and perceptions. They love each other, converse with each other, and delight in each other's society. They play different roles in man's redemption, each having his appropriate function and neither doing the work of the other. The Son is mediator and not the Father. The Father sends the Son and is not himself sent nor is he conscious, like the Son, of taking flesh. Here, then, we have three intelligent agents, possessed of different consciousnesses, different wills, and different perceptions, performing different acts, and sustaining different relations. And if these things do not imply and constitute three minds or beings, we are utterly at a loss to know how three minds or beings are to be formed. It is difference of properties and acts and consciousness which leads us to the belief of different intelligent beings. And if this mark fails us, our whole knowledge fails. We have no proof that all the agents and persons in the universe are not one and the same mind. When we attempt to conceive of three gods, we can do nothing more than represent to ourselves three agents distinguished from each other by similar marks and unique features to those which separate the persons of the Trinity. And when common Christians hear these persons spoken of as conversing with each other, loving each other, and performing different acts, how can they help regarding them as different beings, different minds? We do then, with all earnestness, though without harshly criticizing our brethren, protest against the irrational and unscriptural doctrine of the Trinity. To us, as to the Apostle and the earliest Christians, there is one God, even the Father. With Jesus, we worship the Father as the only living and true God. 
we are astonished that anyone can read the New Testament and avoid the conviction that the Father alone is God. We hear our Savior continually characterizing the Father in this way. We find the Father continually distinguished from Jesus by this title. God sent His Son. God anointed Jesus. Now, how unique and inexplicable is this phraseology, which fills the New Testament, if this title belongs equally to Jesus? And if a main object of this book is to reveal Him as God, as partaking equally with the Father in supreme divinity, we challenge our opponents to produce one passage in the New Testament where the word God means three persons, where it is not limited to one person, and where, unless turned from its usual meaning by the connection, it does not mean the Father. Can stronger proof be given that the doctrine of three persons in the divine nature is not a fundamental doctrine of Christianity? This doctrine, were it true, must, because of its difficulty, uniqueness, and importance, have been taught with great clearness, guarded with great care, and stated with all possible precision. But where does this statement appear? From the many passages which treat of God, we ask for one, one only, in which we are told that He is a threefold being, or that He is three persons, or that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the contrary, in the New Testament, where we might expect many express assertions of this nature, God is declared to be one without the least attempt to prevent the reader from understanding the words in their usual sense. And he is always spoken of and addressed in the singular number, that is, in language which was universally understood to refer to a single person, and to which no other idea could have been attached, without an explicit notification. So, so entirely do the scriptures abstain from stating the Trinity, that when our opponents would insert into it their creeds and doxologies, they are compelled to leave the Bible and to invent forms of words altogether unsanctioned by scriptural phraseology. That a doctrine so strange, so liable to misapprehension, so fundamental as this is said to be, and requiring such careful exposition, should be left so undefined and unprotected, to be made out by inference, and to be hunted through distant and detached parts of Scripture, this is a difficulty which, we think, no cleverness can get around. We have another difficulty. Christianity, it must be remembered, was planted and grew up amidst sharp-eyed enemies who overlooked no objectionable part of the system and who must have fastened with great earnestness on a doctrine involving such apparent contradictions as the Trinity. We cannot imagine an opinion against which the Jews, who prided themselves on an adherence to God's unity, would have raised as loud a protest. Now, how can it be that in the apostolic writings, which relate so much to objections against Christianity and to the controversies which grew out of this religion, not one word is said implying that objections were brought against the gospel from the doctrine of the Trinity. Not one word is uttered in its defense and explanation, not a word to rescue it from reproach, not a word to rescue it from criticism and misinterpretation. This argument has almost the force of a proof. 
We are persuaded that, had three divine persons been announced by the first preachers of Christianity, all equal and all infinite, one of whom was the very Jesus who had recently died upon a cross. This unique teaching of Christianity would have almost absorbed every other, and the great labor of the apostles would have been to repel the continual assaults which it would have awakened. But the fact is that not a whisper of objection to Christianity on that account reaches our ears from the apostolic age. In the epistles, we see not a trace of controversy called forth by the Trinity. We have further objections to this doctrine drawn from its practical influence. We regard it as unfavorable to devotion by dividing and distracting the mind in its communion with God. It is a great excellence of the doctrine of God's unity that it offers to us one object of supreme honor, adoration, and love, one infinite Father, one being of beings, one origin and fountain to whom we may refer all good, in whom all our powers and affections may be concentrated, and whose lovely and venerable nature may pervade all our thoughts. True piety, when directed to an undivided deity, has a chasteness, a singleness, most favorable to religious awe and love. Now the Trinity sets before us as three distinct objects of supreme adoration, three infinite persons, having equal claim on our hearts, three divine agents performing different functions, and to be acknowledged and worshipped in different relations. And is it possible, we ask, that the weak and limited mind of man can attach itself to those with the same power and joy as to one infinite Father, the only first cause, in whom all the blessings of nature and redemption meet as their center and source? Must not devotion be distracted by the equal and rival claims of three equal persons? And must not the worship of the conscientious, consistent Christian be disturbed by worry, lest he withhold from one or another of these his due proportion of honor? We also think that the doctrine of the Trinity injures devotion not only by joining to the Father other objects of worship, but by taking from the Father the supreme affection which is His due and transferring it to the Son. This is a most important insight, that Jesus Christ, if exalted into the infinite deity, should be more interesting than the Father, is precisely what might be expected from history and from the principles of human nature. Human beings want an object of worship like themselves, and the great secret of idolatry lies in this propensity. A God, clothed in our form and feeling our wants and sorrows, speaks to our weak nature more strongly than a Father in heaven, a pure spirit, invisible and unapproachable, except in the case of a reflecting and purified mind. We think, too, that the unique functions ascribed to Jesus by the popular theology make him the most attractive person in the Godhead. The Father is the depository of the justice, the vindicator of the rights, the avenger of the laws of the divinity. On the other hand, the Son, the brightness of divine mercy, stands between incensed deity and guilty humanity, exposes his meek head to the storms, and his compassionate breast to the sword of divine justice, bears our whole load of punishment, and purchases with his blood every blessing which descends from heaven. 
need we state the effect of these representations, especially on ordinary minds for whom Christianity was chiefly designed, and whom it seeks to bring to the Father as the loveliest being? We do believe that the worship of a bleeding, suffering God tends strongly to absorb the mind and to draw it from other objects, just as the human tenderness of the Virgin Mary has given her so conspicuous a place in the devotion of the Church of Rome. We believe, too, that this worship, though attractive, is not most fitted to spiritualize the mind, that it awakens human emotion rather than that deep veneration of the moral perfection of God, which is the essence of piety. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Channing gives a quick overview of what Unitarian Christians think about Jesus. Having thus given our views on the unity of God, I proceed in the second place to observe that we believe in the unity of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is one mind, one soul, one being, as truly one as we are, and equally distinct from the one God. We complain of the doctrine of the Trinity, that not satisfied with making God three beings, it makes Jesus Christ two beings and thus introduces infinite confusion into our conceptions of his character. This corruption of Christianity, alike repugnant to common sense and to the general sense of Scripture, is a remarkable proof of the power of a false philosophy in disfiguring the simple truth of Jesus. According to this doctrine, Jesus Christ, instead of being one mind, one conscious intelligent principle whom we can understand, consists of two souls two minds, the one divine, the other human, the one weak, the other almighty, the one ignorant, the other omniscient. Now we maintain that this is to make Christ two beings, to denominate him one person, one being, and yet to suppose him made up of two minds infinitely different from each other, is to abuse and confound language, and to throw darkness over all our conceptions of intelligent natures. According to the common doctrine, each of these two minds in Christ has its own consciousness, its own will, its own perceptions. They have, in fact, no common properties. The divine mind feels none of the needs and sorrows of the human, and the human is infinitely removed from the perfection and happiness of the divine. Can you imagine two beings in the universe more distinct? We've always thought that one person was constituted and distinguished by one consciousness. The doctrine that one and the same person should have two consciousnesses, two wills, two souls, infinitely different from each other, this, we think, is an enormous strain on our ability to believe. We may say that if a doctrine so strange, so difficult, 
so remote from all the previous human conceptions, be indeed a part and an essential part of revelation. It must be taught with great clarity, and we ask our brethren to point to some plain, direct passage where Christ is said to be composed of two minds infinitely different, yet constituting one person. We find none. Other Christians, indeed, tell us that this doctrine is necessary to the harmony of the Scriptures, that some texts ascribe to Jesus Christ human and others divine properties, and that to reconcile these we must suppose two minds to which these properties may be referred. In other words, for the purpose of reconciling certain difficult passages, which a careful interpretation can in a great degree, if not wholly, explain we must invent a hypothesis vastly more difficult and involving massive absurdity. We are not to find our way out of a labyrinth by a clue which conducts us into mazes infinitely more inextricable. Surely, if Jesus Christ felt that he consisted of two minds and that this was a leading feature of his religion, his phraseology respecting himself would have been colored by this particular conviction. Human language is founded upon the idea that one person is one mind and one soul. And when the multitude heard this language from the lips of Jesus, they must have understood it in its usual meaning. It must have referred to a single soul all which he spoke, unless expressly instructed to interpret it differently. But where do we find this instruction? Where do you meet in the New Testament the phraseology which abounds in Trinitarian books? and which necessarily grows from the doctrine of two natures in Jesus. Where does this divine teacher say, This I speak as God, and this as man. This is true only of my human mind, this only of my divine mind. Where do we find in the epistles a trace of this strange phraseology? Nowhere. It was not needed in that day. It was demanded by the errors of a later age. We believe, then, that Christ is one mind, one being, and, I add, a being distinct from the one God. That Christ is not the one God, not the same being with the Father, is a necessary implication of our former topic, in which we saw that the doctrine of three persons in God is a fiction. But on so important a subject, I would add a few remarks. We wish that those from whom we differ would weigh one striking fact— Jesus, in his preaching, continually spoke of God. The word was always in his mouth. We ask, does he, by this word, ever mean himself? We say, never. On the contrary, he most plainly distinguishes between God and himself, and so do his disciples. How this is to be reconciled with the idea that the manifestation of Christ as God was a primary aim of Christianity, our adversaries must determine. If we examine the passages in which Jesus is distinguished from God, we shall see that they not only speak of him as another being, but seem to labor to express his inferiority. He is continually spoken of as the Son of God, sent of God, receiving all his powers from God, working miracles because God was with him, judging justly because God taught him, having claims on our belief because he was anointed and sealed by God, 
and as able of himself to do nothing. Now we ask what impression this language was fitted and intended to make. Could any who heard it have imagined that Jesus was the very God to whom he was so carefully declared to be inferior? The very being by whom he was sent and from whom he professed to have received his message and power? Let it be remembered that the human birth and bodily form and humble circumstances and mortal sufferings of Jesus must all have prepared men to interpret in the most unqualified manner the language in which his inferiority to God was declared. Why, then, was this language used so continually and without limitation if Jesus were the supreme deity and if this truth were an essential part of his religion? I repeat it, the human condition and sufferings of Christ tended strongly to exclude from men's minds the idea of his proper deity, And, of course, we should expect to find in the New Testament perpetual care and effort to counteract this tendency to hold him forth as the same being with his Father if this doctrine were true, as is supposed, the soul and center of his religion. We should expect to find the phraseology of Scripture cast into the mold of this doctrine, to hear often of God the Son, of our Lord God Jesus and to be told that to us there is one God, even Jesus. But instead of this, the inferiority of Christ pervades the New Testament. It is not only implied in the general phraseology, but repeatedly and decidedly expressed, and unaccompanied with any admonition to prevent its application to his whole nature. Could it then have been the great purpose of the sacred writers to exhibit Jesus as the supreme God? When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about the few texts in which, arguably, Jesus is referred to as God? these remarks will be met by two or three texts in which Christ is called God, and by a class of passages, not very numerous, in which divine properties are said to be ascribed to him. To these we offer one plain answer. We say that it is one of the most established and obvious principles of interpretation that language is to be explained according to the known properties of the subject to which it is applied. Everyone knows that the same words convey very different ideas when used in relation to different beings. Thus, Solomon built the temple in a different manner from the architect whom he employed, and God repents differently from man. Now we maintain that the known properties and circumstances of Christ, his birth, sufferings, and death, his constant habit of speaking of God as a distinct being from himself, 
his praying to God, his ascribing to God all his power and position, these acknowledged properties of Christ, we say, oblige us to interpret the comparatively few passages which are thought to make him the supreme God in a manner consistent with his distinct and inferior nature. It is our duty to explain such texts by the rule which we apply to other texts in which human beings are called gods and are said to be partakers of the divine nature, to know and possess all things, and to be filled with all God's fullness. These latter passages we do not hesitate to modify and restrain and turn from the most obvious meaning because this meaning is opposed to the known properties of the beings to whom they relate. And we maintain that we adhere to the same principle and use no greater latitude in explaining as we do the passages which are thought to support the deity of Christ. Trinitarians profess to derive some important advantages from their way of viewing Christ. It supplies them, they tell us, with an infinite atonement, for it shows them an infinite being suffering for their sins. The confidence with which this fallacy is repeated astonishes us. When pressed with the question whether they really believe that the infinite and unchangeable God suffered and died on the cross, they acknowledge that this is not true, but that Christ's human mind alone suffered the pains of death. How have we then an infinite sufferer? This language seems to us calculated to fool ordinary people and very derogatory to God's justice, as if this attribute could be satisfied by poor reasoning and a fiction. We are also told that Christ is a more interesting object, that his love and mercy are more felt when he is viewed as the supreme God who left his glory to take humanity and to suffer for men. That Trinitarians are strongly moved by this way of looking at it, we do not mean to deny. But we think their emotions altogether founded on misapprehension of their own doctrines. They talk of the second person of the Trinity's leaving his glory and his Father's presence to visit and save the world, but the second person, being the unchangeable and infinite God, was evidently incapable of parting with the least degree of his perfection and happiness. At the moment of his taking flesh, he was as intimately present with the Father as before, and equally with his Father filled heaven and earth and infinite space. This Trinitarians acknowledge, and still they profess to be touched and overwhelmed by the amazing humiliation of this immutable, that is to say, unchangeable being. But not only does their doctrine, when fully explained, reduce Christ's humiliation to a fiction, it almost wholly destroys the impression with which his cross ought to be viewed. According to their doctrine, Christ was, comparatively, no sufferer at all. It is true, his human mind suffered. But this, they tell us, was an infinitely small part of Jesus, bearing no more proportion to his whole nature than a single hair of our heads to the whole body, or than a drop to the ocean. The divine mind of Christ, and which was most properly himself, was, as divine, infinitely happy at the very moment of the suffering of his humanity. Whilst hanging on the cross, he was the happiest being in the universe, 
as happy as the Infinite Father, so that his pains, compared with his happiness, were nothing. This Trinitarians do and must acknowledge. It follows necessarily from the immutability of the divine nature which they ascribe to Christ, so that their system, justly viewed, robs his death of interest, weakens our sympathy with his sufferings, and is, of all others, most unfavorable to a love of Christ, founded on a recognition of his sacrifices for humankind. We esteem our own views to be vastly more impactful. It is our belief that Christ's humiliation was real and entire, that the whole Savior and not a part of him suffered, that his crucifixion was a scene of deep and unmixed agony. As we stand round his cross, our minds are not distracted, nor our feelings weakened, by contemplating him as composed of incongruous and infinitely differing minds, and as having a balance of infinite happiness. We recognize in the dying Jesus only one mind. This, we think, renders his sufferings and his patience and love in bearing them incomparably more impressive and affecting than the system we oppose. Next week on the Trinity's podcast, the last portion of Channing's famous sermon, in which he addresses the goodness of God and Jesus' ongoing role as mediator who reconciles human beings to God. This week's thinking music has been the track Victoria by Admiral Bob. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download the entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.